if you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Romans chapter 8. Um, I also wanted to point out that if you typically follow along with um, us on the app, um, there's, a, there's a, a little different feature within those that I want you to make. There's a little, a little text box, and that's for you to take notes within the app if you want. If you don't like, just fill in. That way you don't have to go back and forth to a bunch of different things. So if you want to just take notes there, you can. Or you can just go old school, which is what I prefer to handwrite stuff. So, um, but it's there if you want that. So if you see a little box, that's for your use, not for anything that I'm going to say um, for that. So don't be looking to fill in a big box. You just have that for your use. Um, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're, we're finishing this great chapter of Scripture, what we've said that, that some people claim is the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, not because it's superior to others, but because it encapsulates everything of the Christian life. That from Beginning to end, what we see in Romans chapter 8 is a description of God's powerful work on his people's behalf. And so um, I just want to read it first and then we'll get in. We'll be in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. They're at the end of the chapter. So if you will, follow along as I read and then we will get deeper into our text today. So in Romans 8 verse 31... Paul writes, what, sh- what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding For us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you will pray with me as we begin our time today. Father God, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you that that we can find confidence and assurance in the words that you have given us. I just pray that we would be submissive to your spirit and allow your truth to change our hearts and to impact our lives so that those who do not know you would see a difference and ask. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. And so as we, as we begin today, you'll know um, if you've been here for any time, we like asking questions. We always want to ask questions because it feels like that, that when we ask questions, it, it gets kind of the heart of the matter. And so, so really, there, there's two categories that the people that fall into right now that would be here worshiping. And the first category you can kind of ask yourself, and this will point out who you are, is that, that why are you here? Like, start thinking about why are you here? And, and, and those people, these are people that are believers, who are Christians, who understand. But the question then is, so why are you here? 
Is it out of, out of duty? Out of a, a religious devotion? Out of fear, maybe? Maybe there's anxiety about what's happening in your life and you feel like you should be here. But what we need to understand is all those external things or all those emotions that we feel that just drive us here out of obligation are, are simply really moralism in disguise. That if, that if we are believers, then the, the only way to truly worship is through a heartfelt expression of thanksgiving, which only comes through the Spirit of God working in our hearts. And so all of these other reasons that we would come really mask the need for why we're here. And so a lot of times what happens then, if you, you start talking about that, the question then becomes, but, but if you knew the week that I had, you would know that, that Thanksgiving's really far. Like, it's hard for me to be grateful or thankful to God for life because my life is crazy. And what I would answer to that, and what, but if that's you right now, if that's you walking through this season, if you're traveling this road of suffering and hardship, then, then I would ask that you would change your perspective on who God is. Because really, it's not that, that your life is overwhelming, it's that your perspective has been changed. That you're seeing who God is, you're seeing your life from a perspective that it was not intended, and therefore you can't see thanksgiving and gratitude because you're looking at all the craziness, but if you would align your perspective, then you would see the majesty that we have in Christ, and that leads to thanksgiving and to worship, despite what's happening. So today, that passage that we just read, that, that's a, that's a perspective-changing passage. It, it shows us who we are in Christ, and then it allows us then to orient our perspective properly so that we can then truly worship, that we can then come to worship and to serve, not out of obligation, but as of thankfulness and gratitude for what Christ has done. And then the other person that's here today, those who aren't believers, the question is, what do you hope to get out of today? Like, because it, it always amazes me, and I don't know why it does, but it, it always amazes me that we have so many people who aren't true believers that continually come. And so the question is, what are you hoping to get out of it? Because most people that aren't believers that come to church because of relationships, it's typically they, they want to get a better understanding of Christianity, or maybe they just want to get a taste of Christianity. Like, let me see what this is actually like. Let me see what's happening. And if I stay long enough, I'll be able to see through the, the front that people put on and I'll finally figure it out, right? And so what I want to encourage you on is that that's a great idea, but it's not possible. It's not possible to get a, a taste of Christianity unless you're a Christian. You don't understand it. I was, I was listening to a sermon from Tim Keller and he was talking about his mother-in-law, always talking about how that she wanted to write a book, How to Parent the Fifth Child like the first, right? And, and, and the point was that you can't. That, that you can't parent the fifth child or the first child like the fifth child because until you experience it, you don't know how to do it. And so when you have your first child, right, you, you freak out because you don't, you're not aware that they're almost unbreakable, right? That I remember that when Keaton was born and they did the first little thing, they're like moving his hips all around. I'm like, you're about to break the kid and he's minutes old. Right, that's freaking out. Right, you're like, what are they doing? Like, you're getting mad at the doctor that just delivered. You're like, dude, you need to calm down. Right, like, but but he but they're so flexible and everything. It's like, but then by the time you get 
multiple children. And those of you that have gone past two, like Lindsay and I, you get it that you're just like, yeah, they fell. You're not right? But, but what, what Tim Keller's talking about is the fact that, that his mother-in-law always wanted to say, if we could teach people to parent the first one like the fifth one, then it would be better. But you can't. There's no way to get an experience until you experience it. But we have a culture that says you can. We have a culture that says you can investigate something without diving into it. But you can't. It's, uh, to tell you another way, it's, it's like a, an imagination on a kid, right? You tell him, we, we went to, to Colorado this, this last summer. And we were talking to Keaton and Kelby about seeing the mountains. They'd never seen the mountains. They'd seen hills. But it wasn't until we got on the top of Pikes Peak and you can see that you're so high up there, then you can actually understand. But because prior to that, when we said we're going to go to the mountains, they're like, well, we've got hills. What's the difference? And if you've never experienced it, you don't have anything. It doesn't matter what pictures or images that you can see. It doesn't actually give you the experience until you're standing on the top of it and you see the magnitude of it and then you realize why these are hills and those are mountains. And so if that's you here, if that's you that that you're not a believer, that you've never truly submitted your life, then what you're going to hear is a great answer of why Christians have hope, joy, security, and peace. But you're not going to completely understand it until you truly submit your life to Christ. And so if you're waiting to understand it before you jump in, you're going to be waiting. And if you look at the Bible and you understand what the Bible says, you're going to be waiting in condemnation of your sin. So if you're waiting to understand, you're going to continue to wait. You can't experience it without experiencing it. And so you're going to get a good example of why we have hope, joy, security, and peace. But it's not to give you an understanding It's to give you a description so that then maybe you'll submit your life and truly step into the joy, the hope, the peace, and the security. Because what we see in this passage is an expression of God's love for his people. We we see that we can experience his love, and then we see the endlessness of his love that Paul describes as he finally completes this great chapter of scripture and so first thing that we need to understand or the first reality of God's love that we experience as Christians is the expression of God's love and that's what Paul starts with all right we need to take notice of how he explains this expression of God's love that's what he says midway through verse 31 he says if God is for us who can be against us and so he sets up this expression of God's love with showing us with election, I think, still in mind from the, the last few chapters or the few verses, 28, 29, and 30. He still has election in the mind. And so he's saying now that the fact that God is for his elect, and that's going to start showing the expression of God's love because if God is for us, then the logical conclusion is in who can be against us. And what happens is this brings us great comfort. So if you're a believer and you're here, like, my life's crazy, find comfort in the fact that God is for you because he's chosen you. It leads to this understanding of God is for us, but it also brings up a question. And it's a a valuable question. It's a, a logical question because then the question is, if God is for us and Paul says, who can be against us, then most people object with, then why do Christians suffer? If God is for us, if he has what's best in mind, then why do we suffer? Why do Christians often have the worst life, right? 
And there's a, there's a few reasons for that. And I think the, the first is that we have to remind ourselves that the Bible is always more concerned with our spiritual well-being than our physical well-being. Right? Because our life now is not the end result. But spiritually, reconciled to God for eternity with Him is the end result. And then this suffering is nothing. But it's also a problem with society because we've come into this point where we don't let anything happen. Right? If you're ever around other people's children, then you know the craziness that parents are. Right? We don't let anything happen. It makes me think of Finding Nemo, which I hate because I'm like, well, I don't want to talk about Finding But Right? But that's what Dory corrects him. Right? He says, well, if you never let anything happen to him, then nothing will ever happen to him. Right? And so what you see is actually that, that if you don't experience suffering, then there's a level that you're never going to experience God's grace. Because your suffering magnifies the reality of God's grace. The, the, and this is the danger of the prosperity gospel. Because it says, you know what? If God's for you, then you're going to get everything you desire. But that replaces God for other desires. And it's not helpful because at some point, life is chaotic. At some point, sickness happens and you can't explain it. And if you're holding on to the fact that if God's for you, then nothing can be against you, and that means your life is going to be great, when that happens, you cannot understand it, and your faith is shattered. But Paul gives us great encouragement by giving us this expression of God's love. And it calls us, causes us to stand firm. So we look back and we think that, that if God is for us, that causes us to stand firm no matter what circumstance because we realize that the creator of the universe that spoke everything into being is for us. Knowing that God is for you should cause you to stand firm if you're a believer. That's what John Calvin says, that, that this is the chief and only support for which can sustain us in every temptation. Just knowing that God is for you is the only Support that you can find in every single temptation. That is for you. And so then that leads us to realize that when we see the expression of God's love and the fact that he is for us, that God's favor, God's support, God's love alone comforts the hurting, reassures the fearful, and strengthens the weak. And so we get, if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, right? He says that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you look back at redemptive history, God has continually been faithful to his people despite circumstances that may not not explain. Later on, it, it, verse 36, Paul's quoting Psalm 44. If you want to be reassured that your life is going to be okay, then don't read Psalm 44. Because the whole thing's talking about what's happening and that there's, the terrible things are happening. But yet God's still faithful. He'll never leave you for, or forsake you. But how do we know? How, how do we know? And that's where Paul goes next. Look at, look at verse 32. This is the true expression of God's love. He says, he, do not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. Right? That's the expression of God's love that allows us to stand firm when we say that if God is for us. How do we know that God is for us? Because he gave his only son, his own son, for us. Jesus Christ is the visible expression of God's love for us and allows us and gives us the ability to stand firm knowing that God is for us because God sent his own son. Not just sent his own son, gave him to die. 
His own. When we see that, that, that word own is very important because it's talking about that, that Christ, while he is fully human, he's unique in the fact that he is God's own son. So God gave his own son to die for people that did not deserve it. There's not a better expression of love. And so what we have to understand, what Paul continually goes back to any writing scripture, is we have to understand that as Christians we must look to the cross for everything. And in fact, the, the Christian life should be lived in the shadow of the cross. The, the, the cross looms over our life because it gives us confidence knowing that God is for us because we see a visible expression of his love. That apart from the cross, we have no hope, peace, joy, or life. But because of the cross, we have all things because of the expression of God's love. So if you're hurting if you're a believer right now and you're hurting, then look to the cross and know that God is for you. If you're fearful, if you're afraid because you don't know what's going to happen, the security doesn't seem possible in the world, then look to the cross and remember that God is for you. You see that when you see the cross. If you're anxious, if you battle anxiety, then look to the cross and trust and know that if God is for you, who can be against you? Because of the visible expression of God's love that we can always find hope and comfort and security. No matter how we feel, no matter what circumstances come to us that's not of our doing, God is for us. Who can be against us? And if we look to the cross, if we remind ourselves of the gospel, that's the only thing that's going to come out of it. I keep a little, little notebook every day. Um, that just kind of has a to-do list. It's not necessarily I have to do it in order. It's just things that I want to think because my mind's scattered and so I need to try to somewhat corral everything. And, and there's always something I always put, consider the gospel. Every day I have in there somewhere. It's not the top thing. It's not, but in there somewhere, it's consider the gospel because then every time that I look at it, because I like checking off my stuff, and then I'll look at it and it reminds me, consider the gospel. And what I mean by that is to look at the cross and know that your identity, security, comfort, hope is found not in yourself, but in Christ. And it's just a continual reminder, and that's exactly what I think Paul is saying here. He's saying that, that look back at the cross, because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how much we not graciously give us all things, right? That's an expression of love that's not found. And so if you're here and you're not a believer and you're sitting there with your doubt, your questions, your unbelief, what are those typically are, are usually wrapped up with, I think, in our culture now is that how can a loving God allow so much oppression and violence in the world? Right? That's typically somehow sums up most people's arguments with Christianity. How can you have a loving God and allows oppression and violence? And what I would say to that is look to the cross. And see the fact that, that he allowed the violence to be poured out on his son far more than most of us ever experience for you. And so even the unbeliever look to the cross and see an expression of love that's not found in anywhere else. That's not found in any other person. Circumstance. It's found in the fact that God gave his own son to die for you. And there's not a better expression of love that we find. But what's amazing, if we keep going, we see that it's not only an expression of God's love, but we can experience that love. All right? Look at verse 33 and 34. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was the one who raised, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We can experience God's love. And and to to understand that, I want to ask you, what is the greatest threat to mankind? Think about it. What is the greatest threat that, that poses harm or destruction to mankind? You know, let's say that it's God's wrath poured out on sin, right? That's the greatest, that's the greatest thing that's against mankind is the fact that God's wrath will one day be poured out on our sin. And so when we understand that, we realize what a great assurance is found in verses 33 and 34. It's an experience of his love. Who shall bring any charge? That brings you comfort. If you've seen the expression of God's love on the cross, then you know that it has to do something, and you experience it by understanding that who can bring any charge? It's assurance. If God's wrath on sin is the greatest danger, then it always leads us to ask, am I really saved? Right? It leads us to wonder, am I secure then? Right? Because if God's wrath really is going to be poured out on sin, and because I'm in Adam, Romans 5, or in Christ, how do I know that I'm in Christ? How do I find assurance? And first we have to deal with the fact that assurance is possible. We're coming up on the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. And the chief thing in the Reformation was assurance of salvation. That you can find and know that you're assured of who you are or that you are in Christ. It is possible. But it's only when we look to the cross do we actually find the reality of that assurance. Because we see that, that on the cross, our sin was paid for. And when we know that that judgment has been taken out, then we can go to the next step, which Paul does. It says, it, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who is God? It's God who justifies who it is that can condemn. Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then if we need to experience his love, if we need assurance, we look nothing more to the cross and we see that it's God who justifies That it's God who does that. It's God that said on the cross that your sins are paid for in Christ. And so who then is to condemn? No one. Paul gives us assurance by reminding us that on the cross our sins were paid for. And so if God's wrath poured out on sin is the greatest danger that we face, then Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us is the greatest salvation that we can experience. And it's only when we look to Jesus, the visible expression of God's love, will we find the assurance that we all seek. That Christ's death paid the punishment of our sin. And so his life and resurrection will be evidence of that life. And so the fact that we are within him, the fact that the Spirit is working powerfully in your life, testifies that you're his. And we understand that even more if we keep going to the end of verse 34. He says, who is indeed interceding for us. What a great, great realization that Christ didn't stop at his resurrection, but he's still to this day interceding for us on behalf toward the Father, right? It wasn't just that he raised and was resurrected and we have life. No, he's still interceding for us. 
He didn't leave us on our own. We have the Spirit within us, His Spirit within us, and He's interceding at the right hand of God. So we can say surely that if His death and life were accepted by God on our behalf, then surely His intercessions are accepted by God on our behalf. And there's no better way to find assurance than to know that Christ Himself not only died for you, but He's interceding for you. That points us to the totality of Christ in the Christian's life. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, that if Christ be anything, he must be everything. And again, Calvin said in the same thing, that for our faith is nothing except that we feel assured that Christ is ours. And what they're saying is that Christ is everything. And and what Calvin, he's pointing out even another aspect of that, and the fact that, that if our faith does nothing to show us that Christ is ours, then it's worth nothing. That if our faith doesn't drive us to the cross in Christ, seeing him on the cross for us, then it does nothing for us. It gives no assurance unless we see that Christ is ours and that we are his. So are you doubting salvation? Because this, this doesn't mean that, that you're not going to have doubts. It doesn't mean that you're going to have period. It just means that what we do is that when we doubt salvation, if that's you right now trying to figure out Am I actually saved? Then look to the cross. Look look at the fact that Christ paid the penalty. And if you confess that, if you understand that, if you've submitted your life, then assurance is yours. He's interceding on your behalf. But some of us don't doubt salvation. Some of us go to the opposite side of it and wonder if we're good enough, right? It's not that I'm not saved, but am I good enough to continue to be saved, right? Be assured that even in the reality of your inability to effectively deal with your sin, you can experience God's love through Christ alone. We rest in Christ's completed work. We don't continue to strive to make ourselves better or more acceptable. We rest in Christ's work. And there's others of us that think, I I don't need that, right? That I'm okay where I am, or I can get myself out of this, right? That's the the culture that we have. And and to me, that's one of the biggest biggest obstacles to the the gospel proclamation in our culture is that, that we have created a society where you can get yourself out of anything that you want. That there's no real consequences. There's someone else always to blame. That you can fix yourself or that you're not really that bad. Because when we look, every one of you knows somebody who's morally worse than you are. And then if we're not thinking straight, then we use them to justify who we are. And we stop there. Right? We look at, we look at the news. We look at Facebook. We see everything around us and think, you know what? My life's not screwed up as theirs. I'm pretty good. I don't, I don't need any help. I can get myself out of that. But that's just the danger of a moralistic, secular society that says, you know what? You can be whatever you want to be. It's just a determination in your mind. Or just be a little better than someone else. And then you feel good about yourself. The only way to have hope, peace, and joy, and security is by experiencing God's love through the power of his spirit working in your heart. There's no other way. You can't just decide that I'm good enough because you're not. Because if we're honest, 
the problem with everyone's life is themselves, right? I mean, yes, we have other circumstances. Yes, I know that other people's choices affect you. But the overall, the biggest problem in all of our lives is usually us. We mess it up. We cause ourselves the problems. And so we find assurance in nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified on behalf of us. We experience that, that love through the power of the Spirit working our life. And then ultimately, we walk in the endlessness of God's love. So not only can we feel the experience of God's, or the, feel the experience of God's love and see the expression of God's love, but we can walk in the endlessness of God's love. And this is an amazing way to conclude a chapter. These last four verses, Paul gives us assurance by showing us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's really a logical argument, talking about the experience of God's love. If we can experience it, how do I know that it will last? Right? Because some of us right now are are traveling down that road that, that says, you know what? This is too good to be true. That at some point he's going to leave because a lot of us have the experience of someone in our life that's accepted us, that's loved us, that's left us. Not because of them, but because of something that we did or we were different in some way and they left us. And so we naturally assume that is what God is going to do. We naturally say, you know what, he loves us, I get that, I can experience that, but how do I know I'm going to continually experience that? Because isn't something going to separate us from that? No. Paul assures us that nothing can separate us. And so what you have to understand is as a Christian, you stand before God justified, not condemned, and with Christ as your mediator. And if you see all of those things, if you understand that you're justified, you're not condemned, and Christ is your mediator, then what can separate you? Nothing. There's nothing that can separate you. And Paul gives a description here. It's not an exhaustive thing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. It's not an exhaustive list of things that could possibly separate us. I think Paul's thinking of his life. Because if you look in, I think it's 2 Corinthians when he describes what he's been through, all of those are found in these categories. I think he's using his experience and saying, what shall separate us? Nothing. Why? Because in Christ we're justified, we're not condemned, and we have a mediator standing at the right hand of God the Father and the Spirit testifying to that within us. But what about people who've professed faith and then left the church? That's the question, right? What about people that have come and you see this change and then slowly over time the, the lack of evidence is clear in their life and to make it short I would just say that they never professed a saving faith. And I know that a lot, that's not an answer that a lot of people want, but, but I think Scripture is clear that all who God has chosen, He keeps. You see that from verse 30, right? He predestined, He called, called, He justified, justified, He glorified. That glorified, that's the future event spoken of in the past. It's certain. And so if God has chosen someone and they profess faith and they don't stay in that, then we'd say that it's not a true profession of faith. And that doesn't mean we start looking and picking and choosing people because there's going to be seasons in life that seems lower. There's peaks and there's valleys, but there should always be some evidence. John 6, Jesus himself, 
right? It says, those whom the Father has chosen will come to me, and I will lose none of them. That none of them means none of them. And so if someone has started in faith and then they fall away, you could say that they're not actually in him. The perseverance of the saints, staying in the faith, is evidence that God will complete the work that he started. It's Philippians 1, right? God is going to complete what he has started. God never leaves his people. It's one of the, the greatest things about Psalm 23, 4, right? Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. You're, you're with me. He's with you. What can separate you? Nothing. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be doubts. But what it means is that when we look at the cross and we see the expression of God's love and we begin to experience God's love, then our doubt fades away or burns away just like a morning dew when the sun rises. Right? Why is it, when's it gone? You don't, it's just gone. You don't experience it, you don't see it, but all of a sudden, it's gone. And so when we have those doubts, when we have the hard times, when we read and we, we remember the expression and experience of God's love by going to Him in prayer, if we fellowship with Him in prayer, and we preach the gospel to ourselves, and then we seek out purposefully relationships of other believers, and what's going to happen is you're going to be reminded of the reality of the gospel in your life, that God will never leave you nor forsake you, that all those whom he's chosen he will keep, and then you know that you have assurance that God, nothing is going to separate you. You can create your own list of the things in your life right now that's happening. And nothing will separate you from that. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. And so during times of suffering, what, what happens then is hardship and suffering, it, it, for Christians, it, it makes us realize that we have a need for Christ. Because if we're honest, if everything's good, our, our, our need for Christ is not always present at the front of our minds, if we're honest. And so when suffering and hardship happens, what it does is it drives us to the reality that we need Christ. And that re- realization that we need Christ leads us to run to Him. And when we run to Him, we find rest in Him. We find rescue. And we find rest and rescue in Christ alone because we realize that we can experience the visible expression of God's love for us. And that nothing can separate us. And what's amazing is that it has nothing to do with us. Look at verse 37. Knowing all of these things, so all the things that he just listed, what? We're more than conquerors through him who loved it. Like hyper-conquerors. But what's amazing about that verse is so many people, and even me, I've, in the past, I can think back now and think, oh my gosh, I used that in so the wrong ways. Because if you read verse 37, it's a verse that will humble you, not build up your strength. Because why? You're more than conquerors. Why? Through him. That has nothing to do with you. He's saying that you're more than a conqueror. Why? Because he loved us. It's through his love for us. So it's actually a verse that should humble us, not exalt us. The more than conquerors is showing us the reality of what we are in Christ, not 
in ourselves. We can overcome anything, not because of our effort, because of his. Right? But so many times people read that and say, or they think in their minds, they think, you know what, we can overcome anything because of my effort. Because that's what culture says. That's what society, and sadly, that's what so many churches say. You know what? Just work harder. Be a better person. Do all these external things, and that'll make it better. But that's not what Scripture teaches. It doesn't say that we can overcome everything because of our effort. It says that we can overcome everything because of Christ alone. That we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we overcome because of God's grace and mercy working our life through His Spirit's power in our lives, reminding us of the visible expression and experiential love of God. Knowing that it's endless. That's what's so amazing about verses 38 and 39. We'll read them one more time and then we'll look at it real quick and then we're done. It says, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I want you to focus on is the first three words. Four words. For I am sure. Your version might say convinced, persuaded. What Paul is saying is this is like his personal statement here. He's saying that I'm convinced of this. I'm sure there's a a certainty about knowing this, that nothing can separate me from the love of God, and he knows that by the experience of his life and God being faithful to him. And he says, I'm convinced that this is the reality. Are you? Because what we need in the world is more convictional Christians that have convinced of the truth of the gospel, and they stand firm in that despite family relationships, hardships. They say, you know what? There's nothing that can separate me, and I'm going to stand firm because I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate me. That's a convictional, firm standing in the gospel of the endlessness love of God expressed in Jesus Christ and experienced by the power of the Spirit in your life. And we need Christians who will stand convictionally on that despite what culture says. Because only those who stand firm in that will actually minister to their neighborhood. Only love people when they're unlovable because it's not about us. And so what we understand and we finish up this amazing chapter, we can sum it up in the fact that in Christ alone, Christians experience no condemnation for their sin. And we can see that in Christ alone, that that Christians experience no obligation to perform under the law. That you're not condemned, but you don't have to perform. And that in Christ alone, that Christians experience no separation of God. And so in all of these things, we're not condemned, we have no obligation to perform, there's no separation. In all of those things, we can be more than conquerors because of the expressed, experiential, endless love of God. And in that, in that alone, in God's love and His love alone, do we find assurance 
in a world that offers none. That we can find hope when it seems to be a short commodity. We are more than conquerors because of the expressed, experiential, endless love of God. And that then brings joy and excitement and it leads to worship. It leads to ministry. It leads to preaching the gospel. Not because of what we're doing gains us anything, but because we've already been given everything in Christ alone. And so we look to the cross for everything. And that empowers us to live a life that's drastically different than the culture we live in. Let's pray.